And welcome to the Pope of this morning, John Kohler. Lead us to Christ. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let us pray. Our triune God, we thank you this day, Lord, that you devised the plan from all eternity, uh, that your son is appointed mediator as prophet, priest, and king of our salvation. And Lord, that your spirit administers this gift and this life to us now. So Lord, we pray over your word today, pray that we might be drawn to you, that you might touch our hearts that your word might lead us into the repentance of our sin and, Lord, into a steadfast faithfulness. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled our message today, Divine Warfare. And uh, what I want to try to illustrate to you is how God is conducting his holy war in this world, both in the first century and in the 21st century. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospel begins on that note. It tells us the story of Jesus' divine and mighty power. It's more likely written to Christians who are in Rome, Christians who are being persecuted in a variety of different ways, whether that be physical, economic, or philosophical. Our text is about divine warfare at the end of the age. You see, the coming of the Son of God onto the stage of human history marks the coming of the end. The end in Christ has begun already. And therefore, we are engaged in an end-time battle in which we as believers identify with the Son of God and fight in his final holy war. The scene that we are looking at today follows directly after Jesus' baptism. The baptism, God the Father declared, Jesus is the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. Jesus, the divine warrior, has come to do the will of God. Uppermost in his attention is the defeat of the devil, the announcement of the gospel, and a gathering of a band of holy warriors. My thesis today, I think our scripture is about this point. 
the Lord Jesus is engaged in a holy war. And we, his followers, participate in that battle as we proclaim his gospel message, both to ourselves and to the adversary. That being said, there are three movements in our scripture today. In the first movement, verses 12 through 13, we learn that the Son of God fights God's adversary. The second movement will come in verses 14 and 15. God's message of warfare is his Son. And finally, third movement, verses 16 through 20, God's holy warriors are gathered. Let's look again at our first movement, verses 12 through 13. God's son fights God's adversary. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temptation of Jesus follows directly after his baptism. The baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. Moreover, his ministry begins with the Holy Spirit's appointment of a confrontation with the enemy. The Holy Spirit is active in all of this. He's driving Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus is much like the scapegoat in the Old Testament, who's loaded down with the sins of Israel and expelled into the wilderness. Although the nature of this temptation is not fully spelled out in Mark's gospel, the other writers fill in the details for us. Satan is tempting Jesus to operate by a plan that is different than, that is contrary to the plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enacted from all eternity. We call it the pactum. Verse 13 tells us, that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. This is an important number in the history of God's people, in the history of salvation. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, being tested, being tried. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights as he received the law from God. The great prophet Elijah was led for 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb. The wilderness has always played an important role in the people of God. On the one hand, the wilderness is a place of refuge for Israel, who's oppressed by Egypt as slaves of the Egyptians. On the other hand, the wilderness is a proving ground for the people of God and for the prophets of God. I would call the wilderness prophetic boot camp for the purpose of preparing for holy war. The wilderness can be an affirming place. It can be a very dangerous place at the same time. Notice one different element in verse 13. Mark's gospel records this. No other gospel writer does. That Jesus was with the wild beast. Why would Mark tell us about the wild beast of the wilderness? I think there's a point. It has to do with the fact that this gospel is written to those who are in Rome. And in Rome, the early Christians would literally face wild beasts. Rome was a terrible place for Christians. 
in the first century. We know that Nero had his hands bloody with persecution. We know that Nero would order Christians into the Colosseum, that he would parade them around with skins of animals, and they would be attacked by predators, beasts, dogs that loved to devour helpless prey. The Roman Christians were among the wild animals, and what they need to know is Jesus was among them as well. They are not alone. Mark also tells us that angels attended Jesus in the wilderness. In other words, God does not abandon the Son in the wilderness. And he doesn't abandon Jesus' followers either. I would argue that the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming is a wilderness experience for the people of God. We have salvation already inaugurated. The end has begun, but we're not there yet. And what that means is that we're in this kind of in-between time period in which the people of God will be treated in a similar fashion as their Savior. When Christ was here on this earth, what was his experience like? Was it easy? Did he avoid suffering? Absolutely not. He faced it head on. And I would tell you that this is your experience as well. You will suffer now as we live in this in-between time. The wilderness, I said already, can be an affirming time and a dangerous time. It can be a dangerous time because in the wilderness, you will face setbacks You will face setbacks caused by your own sin. You will face setbacks caused by the sin of others as well. There's two things that you need to know in the wilderness. First, you are not alone. Satan loves, I believe, to use the Lone Ranger mentality on Christians. Tried it on Elijah. You're all alone. I believe the same tactic is used every day on you. You are not alone. God's spirit is here administering your salvation. Secondly, what you need to know is that God forges character in the wilderness. If you look at the history of God's people in the wilderness, you will notice, especially in the Old Testament, that in the wilderness experience, Some prove unfaithful. A remnant, however, believe. A remnant was saved. In the same way, God forges our character in the wilderness that is this world. You and I need prophetic boot camp. We need it. If you feel like you're there now, don't complain. Don't grumble like the Israelites did. Instead, look to the author and perfecter of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a representative of true Israel in his person. The other thing that we need to know about the wilderness is that when Israel in the Old Testament failed, when they grumbled, when they complained, when they failed the test of God, the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not fail. He overwhelmingly conquered. We have not spent a lot of time on Luke's gospel. I'm in Mark, but I have to say this. 
Luke's gospel connects the wilderness experience to Adam. In the garden, Adam fought a battle with the serpent. And he failed. And the paradise turned into a wilderness. Now in the wilderness, the true second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he fights a battle as well, but where the first Adam failed, our Lord is overwhelmingly conquered. Often in military contexts, a king will give a proclamation of war, and he will also outline terms of peace. The basic message of Christianity is the good news. It is the gospel. Hear this. It is good news. It is words of peace for those who are being saved. It is a declaration of war for those who are perishing. The message of our great God and King is the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. God's message is his Son. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. When John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus goes into his public ministry. The forerunner John, his job is over, and now the story shifts decisively to the Son of God and his preaching and power. John was radically focused on Jesus. Jesus is here. John's job is over. It's interesting to me that Mark's gospel links the beginning of Jesus' ministry with an arrest of John the Baptist. Again, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say you must think about the audience to whom this gospel was first written. These are believers who are actively being arrested, who are actively dying for their faith. And they're seeing now John the Baptist, he shared their fate. To those in Rome who are seeing their friends arrested and thrown in jail, they need to know that seeing and savoring Christ will get you beat up. The location of Jesus' ministry is Galilee. Jesus will do more events in Galilee than any other region in his ministry. The content of Jesus' ministry is a proclamation, the gospel of God, the good news of God. Mark's gospel begins with a similar phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. The good news is from God, and it is about his son. It's a message about Jesus, and it's also the person of Christ that is the gospel. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension unto glory, all of these compose the good news. It's good news because Jesus has come in order to save sinners from their sin. The power and the result of sin are not broken by a mere man. We need a heavenly mediator who is prophet, who is priest, and who is king. 
in order to break the power of sin and the curse of death. I believe that the problem of much of evangelicalism and kind of cultural Christianity is that it often fails to see the great need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, it wants to shape the gospel as a different reality. It redefines the gospel as human betterment. This is liberalism or uh, better reality or social issues or all of those types of things. The result is we focus less on Jesus and more on a charismatic person or preacher or another figure who leads a movement. The gospel is about Christ alone. We can never lose sight of that fact. Otherwise, we will trade Jesus for any number of good things that are not the gospel. Jesus' movement is an end-time movement as well. We see this in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament was a reality that was to begin at the end of the world. And here Christ comes proclaiming the end is now. It's inaugurated in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know as well that this kingdom is not yet fully consummated in its final form, but it is here now. The dawning of the kingdom has come. When the end time kingdom comes, it demands a response. We notice this in the second part of verse 15. And I want you to kind of pencil in something with me, either in your minds or, or in your scriptures. Look at this command. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I know it's not obvious in the English text, but these are imperatives. These are present imperatives. The kingdom demands a response from you. Both of these responses are not optional. They're commands. Both of these responses are continual commands. In other words, I don't think Jesus is just saying, do a one-time thing called repentance. Believe once, and that's it. No, it's continual repentance. Continual belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief deals with trust. It implies a movement away from sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind accompanied by a change of action. And therefore, I would argue, it's movement language as well. Repentance is not sorrow for getting caught. This is what our culture thinks. If you're busted in sin, well, you repent. Why? Well, it's obvious that you did it. Repentance is not convenient often. It's painful. Why? Because often sin gets a grip on us, and it distorts our thinking. It distorts the movement of our heart. And when sin is pried away, it's painful. 
When the gospel is preached, it demands an obligation. Repent. Believe the good news. I love the English Puritans. Just recently picked up uh, a Puritan theology written by Joel Beakey and uh, Mark Jones. Very good volume. I would highly recommend it to you. Puritans often prayed for repentance in this way. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Jesus has now dealt the decisive blow to the adversary. He's preached the gospel, and now he gathers his warriors. Verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, the hired servants, and followed him. R.T. France writes, The kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an, in an unnoticed corner, the province of Galilee. Typically, disciples would choose or follow after a particular rabbi. Often in the first century world, being a disciple was a personal choice. You know, you find a figure that you like, attach yourself to that figure, welcome to discipleship. Jesus is unlike first century rabbis. He calls his disciples by name. You know, we can think of other places in scripture, John 15, where Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. That is true here as well. As Jesus calls his disciples by name, I believe he's gathering his divine army and he's preparing them for warfare. Same reality happened to us. I mean, we weren't in the Sea of Galilee fishing, but you are here because Christ called you into saving faith. You didn't go out looking for Jesus, you didn't go out looking for God. God tracked you down. I met recently with a friend from the college. We were having lunch, and he said, I've got to be honest with you, John. I'm a seeker. And I said, I've got to be honest with you. I don't think there's such thing as a seeker. There's only one who seeks. There's a triune God. Jesus is calling his followers into battle with him. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment in relationship to your life. If I'm right, if this is true, then what it means is that your struggles with sin are not merely personal skirmishes against the enemy, but rather you are fighting together with the saints as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ in battle. If you are part of the Lord's army, then you cannot and should not 
Focus your attention on civilian affairs. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus calls Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew were in the midst of civilian affairs when Jesus calls them. They are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I wish that Simon and Andrew were fly fishermen. They are not, regrettably. Instead, the way that these men would fish is that they would take casting nets, kind of large circular nets that had weights at the perimeter, and they would throw those nets into the sea. The nets would sink, they would pull them up, and it would gather fish into the nets. Fishing on the Sea of Galilee was not just a local business either. You need to understand that. The particular fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee were sold all over the Mediterranean marketplace. What this tells me is that these men are engaged in business, yes, but it's an international business. And therefore, they're not just country bumpkins. A lot of people like to look at the uh, apostles as uh, just ordinary men, you know, simple fishermen. And I would say that's not necessarily true. If they engaged in business, then they had to speak the trade language well. They had to know Greek very well. So not only are they businessmen, not only are they fishermen, but I think they're somewhat educated men. Jesus is not calling country bumpkins who have nothing better to do than to mend nets. He's calling men, I believe, who are in the prime of their industry, and he's commanding them, abandon everything. Follow me. Jesus goes further. He sees James and John. And what I've said about Simon and Andrew, I think, is definitely true as well of James and John. They're fishermen, yes, but they're also businessmen. James and John are in the process of mending their nets. Verse 20, we learn that this is not a small-time operation. It's not a mom-and-pop outfit. They have hired men. Now, again, what does this say? I think it tells us that the call does not come to these men when they are at the very bottom of their life, when their business has failed, when they have nothing better to do than to follow an itinerant preacher. The call rather comes in the prime of life, when business is doing exceedingly well. And it's at this point that Christ tells them, come follow me. The response, they leave behind their father, they leave behind the hired men, and they follow Jesus. Many times when we think of the call of Christ, when we think of conversion, regeneration, we think of people who have tried everything in this life, and everything has failed them. And now their last alternative is, well, I guess the Bible is true. You know, and of course, this makes for some lively testimonies. You know, we all need room for the thief of the cross in our theology somewhere. You know, very lively testimonies. But I wouldn't recommend that type of life to you. For the times are good. The fishermen leave everything and they follow Christ. When business is booming, they leave it behind. See, friends, I believe that Jesus is still in the midst of 
of calling and gathering warriors into his end time army to fight against the devil and his minions. The Lord calls you. And I believe if you're a believer, he's called you into the battle. You cannot wait until everything else fails. And then join his army. We are involved in holy war. This is serious business. Let me repeat the point one more time, my thesis, and I will pray. The Lord Jesus Christ is engaged in a holy war. And we, his followers, participate in that battle as we proclaim the gospel message both to ourselves and to the adversary. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to this world in order to save sinners. For Lord, we are all sinners. We all need your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would enlist this church, your church, into the fight. Lord, that we would take the gospel to this city. And I pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen.